Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Form3.tech podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, Head of Platform Engineering at Form3. Today I'm really excited that I've been joined by Igor from Elastic. How's it going today, Igor? Um, hey Kevin, I'm doing alright. Um, how is it going today? Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, do you want to sort of introduce yourself and explain to us what you do at Elastic? Um, sure. So my name is Igor Kupczynski. I'm a principal software engineer at Elastic and specifically I work on the um, Elastic Cloud. So um, Elastic is, is the company behind Elastic Stack. Um, Elastic Search is the probably our best known um, product. And Elastic Cloud is, is this part of the company which um, provides Elastic Search and other products as, as a service. So yeah, I'm, I'm part of that team. Okay, very cool. So I know that um, that you guys are actually running on sort of multiple clouds. So I think it'd be interesting to sort of dig into that architecture. So what's your kind of use case, first of all? Why, why do you want to sort of be on multiple clouds? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So if you think about Elasticsearch, people usually run it um, complementary to their other products. So they may either need a, a search engine for... I don't know, for, for, you know, for their app or, or web page or some other use cases, like they want to ship logs and, and search them um, through Elastic. So you don't, you really don't want to have a like extra latency there. So um, we need to be close to where, where the customers are for, you know, for, 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 for a lot of use cases. And um, because of that, we, um, we are present in the like top three cloud providers, and then we are in multiple regions. That suggest you know for for you as a customer, whether you run your workload on AWS or or, or Azure or GCP, like you can um, you can be close to um, close to Elasticsearch clusters you spin with with Elastic Cloud. Okay, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So let's just dig into that a bit more. So if I'm a customer in AWS and I sort of um, sign up and create a new account. So what happens behind the scenes? Do you spin up infrastructure on demand in AWS and provide me with an endpoint? Or, or sort of how does that process work? Sure. So um, when you tra- this, this is a, a very good question and there are a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but maybe let's start with, with this. So as probably most of the SaaS um, companies, we need to kind of um, fit multiple customer workloads on, on, you know, on, on like one box. So um, your, your, the deployment you start with Elastic Cloud, it usually consists of an Elasticsearch cluster, which is one, one or more um, Elasticsearch instances, and then some other products. Um, so each of the instances will be run in a Docker container on like a larger host on a, on a VM we get from, um, from AWS. We actually use, uh, so we use Docker for that to kind of isolate the workloads of different customers. Um, again, like we want to fit multiple multiple instances on, on a single box, but it does not mean we want you to, um, you know, have this dreaded noisy neighbor problem or, or like we want um, like your Elasticsearch experience to only um, depend on, on the settings or, or, you know, the size of the cluster, the memory and on your workload and not necessarily on um, like who happens to be collocated in the same, you know, in the same box. So actually Docker together with C groups and, and, and some other means of like network isolation is, is quite good for, for that use case. Um, 
when you look at that more from like the process perspective, so when you when you start a new cluster, you either click through the UI or maybe you want to use the API. But regardless, there will be an API call to a component which we call the admin console, and it is like a central controller, which then um, it assembles something which we call a plan. And you can think about like everybody knows Kubernetes nowadays. So in the Kubernetes world, you have this like YAML um, specification of of a resource. So you can think about the plan as, as something like that. It's actually JSON, not YAML, but you know, it's a little difference. And then, so like the admin console will assemble this, this specification. And then um, it will, um, so your, your deployments are bound to a specific region. So um, your instances may be in different availability zones, but it will be, um, or they have to be uh, within a single region. So then the admin console will, um, will actually route this plan to, to more like a regional controller, if you will. And then within a region, it is actually on a high level, it's quite similar to what Kubernetes does. So we have a component which does this um, reconciliation loop, if you will. So it has this plan with kind of declaratively specified end state, and then it knows how the, how the deployment looks at a given point. Like if it is a new deployment, then of course there is nothing. So it knows, okay, I need to create these, these instances. And then this component, it does not do any of the creation itself. It again, like asks different components in the system, but it still schedules the workload. So it's, so it sees like I have these three servers, like I can run maybe instance on one of them. So it will ask the server to start an instance. And then um, there's a small agent on the server, which will actually, um, which will actually um, take care of starting the Docker container, setting the C groups, uh, IP tables, and 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 whatnot. Okay, I see. So it works a bit like what a Kubernetes operator does. Is that is that like the concept in Kubernetes where you have this operator that's got this this end state defined in YAML, and the operator continuously loops around and makes sure that the cluster is in the state that you've specified, and that's kind of the job that your controller is doing in the region. Yeah, that's that's spot on. There are some slight differences, like we are more kind of even event based, so the loop does not run like all the time. Um, there has to be some event, like you want to create a cluster, you want to resize your cluster, or maybe one of our servers went down and we need to recalculate what's what's going on. But um, other than that, it it uh, it's quite spot on. Like it calculates the difference between the current state and the desired state, and asks the other components to you know, to reconcile this, this difference. Okay. So from what you've just explained, what I took away there, it sounds like you've got a lot of custom software that's pretty much acting in a similar way to Kubernetes, like managing Docker containers. So is that the kind of the state of play? And was there a reason you didn't use something like Kubernetes? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great question. And we actually ask this ourselves every now and then. And yeah, I guess the, the main reason is um, is legacy. So Elastic Cloud kind of started maybe around 10 years ago. Um, it was actually like a different company eventually acquired by, by Elastic at some point. But anyways, when um, when it was started back then, like the Kubernetes was still like super new and it wasn't obvious it is the, like it will win the kind of orchestrator walls. And also the, like the, None of the orchestrators provided all of the like features um, the team wanted at that time, so they decided to build something custom. But of course, like 
now we are optimized on this like small, let's say, use case, right? But on, on the other hand, Kubernetes makes progress all the time and it is you know getting better and better and um, more use cases. So to be completely honest, I mean, I'm sure eventually we will we'll move to Kubernetes. Um, we actually do some like, um, we kind of hedge our bets there. So we have this product called Elastic Cloud and Kubernetes, which is um, an operator basically. And it allows you to specify, like if you have your own Kubernetes cluster, um, you can use this operator to, to like specify um, specify your clusters or, or, or some other Elastic products in um, like in a YAML resource basically. And then the operator will, will, will orchestrate that. Um, at the moment, it's not on feature parity with what we do at, at Elastic Cloud, but also the like when we started the project, the goal was to make something which feels more like Kubernetes native component and not to maybe rebuild everything we do um, on top of Kubernetes. But I, I mean, I guess eventually they will they will converge. Like what we what we done in the past with the architectures is. As I mentioned, there, there is like this concept of region and they are fairly separated. So in the past, when we had like um, some major re-architecture, um, we spin the new regions with, let's say the new architecture. And there's some, you know, like some some private private interface or API within Elastic Cloud, which um, interacts with the region. So basically the, the, this interface had like parity between the new and the old, and it allowed us to, to maybe, you know, validate the new things in in new regions, and then gradually switch the old things. So um, I'm I'm pretty sure with Kubernetes we'll you know we'll have to do that at some point. We will have like a facade maybe, and and then the operator and our own infra, uh, sorry, our own orchestration will, will be able to kind of do the same. And you know at some point the customers, without even knowing that, will will have their workloads um, managed by. Kubernetes behind the scenes. Yeah, I think the what you just explained there is is very common problem in the in the sort of tech space. It shows how quickly technology moves because we've got the same thing at Form Three where we started and we built everything on top of ECS and ECS is really good on AWS. Like I'm not going to bash it, but the problem you have is you're tied to a very small community. So. Um, if you move to something like Kubernetes, you've got a massive community and anything that you want, like blue-green deployments, canary deployments, all of these elaborate features, the community would normally solve those. So it's just a matter of plugging it in. Whereas if you're on something like ECS, you're on your own. You have to kind of, there's not much community around it. It's what we've found. You kind of have to solve those problems yourself. So it's pretty much what you explained that you guys have kind of taken your own approach because you had to, because Kubernetes wasn't really around or it wasn't the obvious winner. So you've designed your own system and now you've got it to a point where to replace that with Kubernetes would be a hell of a lot of work. But at some point it probably makes sense because you're going to leverage that community and avoid probably in the long run having to build a lot of this stuff yourself. So it's an interesting balancing act on when it makes sense to switch. And it's something I think a lot of people are probably wrestling with. It's crazy how quick technology moves that in sort of five, six years, probably a lot of people have, have had this problem that kind of were early adopters of the cloud. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think also it's not only the, like, uh, I mean, as you said, basically, uh, the Kubernetes already solved all the problems we need to solve on our own. But it's also um, when we hire, 
we notice that new hires um, nowadays tend to know quite a lot about Kubernetes and we have to, you know, when, when we onboard a, a new hire, we have to describe them the system in terms of Kubernetes, like this is a different charter. It works kind of like the reconciliation loop. This is the allocator. It is kind of like kubelet and, and, you know, like, so there's definitely a cost to switching, but there's also, it's also an investment and it like, it, it makes it easier to, you know, to introduce new people to, to make the architecture more accessible to, to the team. So, yeah, that's a really great point. Probably the onboarding process is, is much longer for someone to get up to speed because everything's bespoke versus if you're running on top of Kubernetes, they're going to be able to make, make a difference and add value much sooner. That's a really good point. So one of the kind of issues that you face with sort of being multi-cloud is that I think you obviously want to try and reuse as much software as possible. Um, so how are, you, how are you kind of achieving that at Elastic? So where are you putting the dividing line between, you know, cloud specific stuff, which obviously you want to make that layer as much as possible and cloud agnostic sort of stuff that you can kind of keep the same on each cloud. Where's that dividing line? Like at Elastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is one one of the challenges with, with multi-cloud. Definitely, I think there is no like perfect demarcation. There, but um, most, I I think mostly you can say that the software engineering team deals with like a single code base, and then there is the site reliability engineering, which also handles like the infra, um, Terraform, and, and stuff like that. And they mostly live in the like. More, more on the like cloud specific world. So we try mostly to use um, like the components which are common between all three. So so like the, the VMs, the object storage, the, well, I'll get back to networking in a bit, but, but let's start with these two. So then like whenever you get a VM from AWS or from GCP, um, you can make them kind of the same, like you can install the same operating system, you can have, you know, the same packages. You may want to tune some of the like kernel parameters a little bit differently, but, um, but, but in general they are like, from the software point of view, they're mostly the same and your software mostly runs on the same, like, you know, Linux with the same Docker version. Um, so, so. Do you build, sorry, software, do you build your same machine images and reuse those on each cloud to use like a cloud agnostic operating system like Ubuntu or something and just build images for that and run those on every cloud or do you kind of use Amazon Linux on Amazon? So so we definitely have like Amazon specific and GCP specific. I'm not 100% sure how they are built to be to be completely honest. Um, but there is like a common build process. Our, you know, CI builds all three of them and like, for example, installing packages like the, there's just one place in the CI spec where you where you specify that. So so I'm not sure what what software behind the scenes is responsible for the like cloud specific, but but most most of the configuration is is cloud agnostic. Yeah, and so 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 yeah. So from a software engineer perspective, there it it is quite easy. There is a little bit it it, it may be a little bit trickier with the um, object storage. There are some differences, but then again, like you can. Um, this is more around like um, how to access, the, like how to provide the credentials to access a bucket in, in Google versus in Amazon. So it is st still like fairly isolated concern. And then your code may, may need, you know, like three different variants to provision a new bucket. But 
um, but but in the end, the the interaction looked quite the same. So um, what about think... reading and writing from a bucket? That's a really good example because I think some a lot of the object storage APIs are like compatible. So do you abstract that away in a library? So you have like an adapter that knows, hey, I'm on AWS, so it loads like the S3 driver behind the scenes, but your kind of application code doesn't need to worry about that. So we we have a common interface, but it's abstracted in like our, let's say our library. So we don't use the like S3 compatible APIs on different cloud providers. Um, yeah. Also, like probably it helps that um, a lot of interactions with the, um, uh, with the object storage goes through Elasticsearch, which has plugins for different different um, cloud providers. So it is like for most cases, it's already abstracted away by by Elasticsearch. And then in some cases where we actually need to access that from the orchestration, um, like access directly, not via a cluster, then then we have our own like small custom code there. Okay, cool. Um, how does the sort of scaling process work? So as a user, do you um, do you scale on demand as I start sort of adding more load? Or do you, or have I got a manual dial I can tweak? And then behind the scenes, how does it work sort of behind the curtain to actually sort of provide more capacity? So yeah, in like the, in a typical SaaS manner, you should, uh, you shouldn't really worry about how many instances are there, right? Or, or how large they are. You should be able to pay by, you know, by, by request or by the size of the of the um, of your data set. But um, actually, this is not what we do. So um, we do have auto scaling, and I will get to that in a second. But like in in essence, we provide, let's say, so, so we don't provide at the moment use cases. We we like provide Elasticsearch clusters. They there is a nice like UI and a nice wizard, so um, we kind of guide you through um, some of the use cases, like you know, search or observability or, or, or the more common one. But um, in the end, um, you can see like how many instances and of what sizes do you have. So it's kind of up to you to scale it up. Now, Elasticsearch has some form of auto scaling, and um, we like there's a special there's a checkbox you can check like auto scale and then you provide like the maximum um you know you are um willing to 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 scale up to um yeah and and with that we want to leverage the um elastic search features to like so so we ask the the underlying software that we run like is it time to scale up or or you know so we don't want to make the guess based on the system load we we much rather um, have the application tell us like okay it's time to scale up and then we'll um we'll scale up but that's something that's going to have to be sort of cloud pacific at some point because you're going to have to have some kind of one of your custom controllers asking you out is it time to scale up or scale down presumably both directions and then it's going to have to when it gets a yes it's going to have to if it's on aws contact like the auto scaling group and then bump another instance on it and, and, and make it scale up and that's going to work differently on Google Cloud. So do you have custom code um, to drive that? True, although this is a solved problem because initially I've mentioned this constructor which processes the plans and, and you know plan is like the specification of the cluster. So then what the auto scaler does it 
it looks at the plan and it changes the, the values in the plan. So it, for example, adds more memory or more instances okay. um, to the plan. And then it draws again through the loop. So um, <clears throat> you're right. You're this building on the operator you've already written to basically solve that yeah, problem. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. And when you mentioned like auto-scaling groups, um, so this is also kind of parallel to, to what a single customer cluster scale, scale up looks like because um, so we have this pool of servers which the constructor can put new instances on. And we usually want, uh, th there, is, there is an automation there, but we usually want to have some, um, you know, like some free space. The larger the region, like AWS, US is our more popular one. So we have a lot of extra capacity there because uh, we, kinda, we know it will be quickly filled up by the, um, by, you know, new customers or, or upscaling customers in, in a smaller region we may have like a smaller buffer, but like in general, we try to keep the buffer. So usually the constructor, it does not need to worry about like extra capacity. And then there's another process which monitors this, this like capacity and, and, and yeah, when it, when it says it's below a threshold, um, it, it will ask the, um, the cloud specific code basically, uh, to, you know, um, to, 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 to provision more resources. And yeah, it, there, there can be some interaction. Like the constructor may notice there is no capacity, and then it will it will also ping this this scaler to to request more capacity from the cloud provider. But usually it works like seamlessly. Like the the automation can catch up, and 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 there is some buffer. Cool. So. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to sort of learn about sort of how you solve some of these problems. I like to sort of just pivot slightly and talk a little bit about sort of the languages you use at. at um, Elastic. So I think Elasticsearch itself was written in Java. So what do the team they use? Do you guys write all of this code written in Java or do you use a, do you use a different language? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, so maybe I'll start that um, various products use different languages at, at Elastic. And um, there's this kind of cliche when you say like, you know, use the best tool for the job, but I think it's easier to so like it, it is a good advice, but what what does it really mean, right? It, it's very context um, context dependent. So I would also say that in Elastic, we kind of accumulated languages over time when um, acquiring new products. So obviously, it started with Elasticsearch, and it is written in Java. But then um, at some point, we added Kibana, which is the UI, which is um, there's like a UI and UI server component, but both of them are written in in, in JavaScript. Um, Elastic Cloud specifically, it was also, it, it, it was acquired by Elastic and the team that started, I think their initial version was in Python, but then at the point where Elastic acquired them, they moved to Scala already. So it's also a like JVM based, but, but a bit different. I think at that point, the main thing for, for Scala was a better Java. Now this was, you know, a few years back and I, I think nowadays Scala evolved more into this like Haskell on JVM and, and it kind of allows you to do some nice, um, uh, higher level types kind of things. So, so yeah, but within Elastic Cloud, we've also introduced, um, Go quite recent, well, maybe not recently, but, um, like I think around two or three years ago, maybe we, um, we had some challenges with our proxy component. So, 
all of the customer requests um, to their clusters, they go through this proxy. And so, so obviously the proxy gets like um, a lot of load and it was written in Scala, but this by itself, it wasn't the problem. It used this library called Spray, which then evolved into Akka HTTP. Unfortunately, when they moved from like Spray to Akka HTTP, they've changed a lot, um, both interfaces and internals. So we, we knew we needed to migrate at some point. And um, actually the migration to Akka HTTP wasn't that easy. And, and someone said like, look, if we are, if we need to do all of this effort, like all of this, you know, validation, testing of, of the new code, why not try to introduce Go? Like uh, th there were some proponents of Go even before, so so it was not like a controversial idea. And, and then we've created like a prototype. Um, it was very like promising. So we made it into like feature parity with the proxy around both at the same time. And at some point just, you know, cut the, the old code and moved to, to Go. And I think it's a good example of use the right tool for the job. I mean, I'm sure the, the Scala code could have been optimized and, and made more performant, but we like cut the number of servers we, we need to run the proxy fleet by, I mean, I think by at least a half and even more. And yeah, and I mean, obviously like Scala can, can do it as well, but the thing is, um, Go was, all, this was like our first big project in Go. So, I would say like it wasn't you know the, the most pro like optimized code you can see in Go. So even just the the defaults and the lack of like the lack of JVM allowed us to cut a lot of memory and yeah it turned out most of the processing the CPU bound there. So actually the overhead of you know JVM was 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 quite large. Okay, yeah that that that's a really interesting kind of use case for Go. I can imagine that Go would fit that use case pretty well because. Go allows you like quite a lot of cu customization within the sort of HTTP processing pipeline that would make it sort of quite easy, I imagine, to write a proxy, like easy relatively. Um, one of the kind of things I've found about Scala, and I'm sure probably have a few people sort of screaming out there, they're listening, whatever they're listening to this on when I say this, is that I feel like Scala is a bit of a machine gun where it's obviously really amazing but you can write some code. It reminds me a bit of regex where you can write a beautiful piece of code. That's like five characters that does like something like really complex. But then when you come back to it three months later, even if you wrote it, I think it can be very confusing. So I think with Scala, you have to be very careful about how you write it to keep it maintainable. That's my kind of take on it. Whereas in Go, it's much more simple language. And I find that it's almost impossible to write code that's, completely hard to understand and maintain. So maybe that that is an advantage as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to totally agree there. And, and I think you can see it in our Scala code base as well, since it evolved over so many years. And there were like, we never, or, or at least not initially, we, we've, we haven't really hired like Scala developers. Uh, obviously Scala was a plus, but if you were like, you know, a, a Java developer with some orchestration or networking experience, like. Or, or, or even, you know, C++ developer, um, and you were willing to learn Scala, that, that was okay. And you can see, especially in the area code, like there, there are these various like kind of camps. So some people write this nice high level Scala, but some, 
some others say like, you know, this is unreadable. They want a simple code. They want something like they would uh, write in Go. And and yeah, initially it was it was kind of a problem. Like it depends, uh, like whether we looked at this module or that module, the, the code style was, was quite different. I think actually adding Go helped because like people kind of self-selected the, the 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 developers who prefer this like simple you know that easy to follow code they they just migrated towards the go projects and it allowed like the scala um part of the house to be maintained by by um team who who like scala who who were able to kind of agree on some you know coding standards and 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 actually Helped a lot there. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think the fact that you can't do magic in Go like really aids the language. Like when you first come to Go, it seems like very verbose because you're like, oh, in Java or Scala, I could do this with one annotation or a couple of characters, and in Go, it's like twenty lines of code. But you actually very quickly begin to learn that that's a plus, especially in the world we're in now, where most companies are running microservices. You've got hundreds of repositories. As an engineer, you're working on different repositories each day. You want to be able to look at the code and pick up what it's doing very quickly. Whereas in some of these other languages, okay, you can make the code readable, but you have to kind of go to that additional effort because there are all these magic tricks you can do. So it's very easy to write obscure code that can take a long time to understand. And in, in the world we're in now where everyone's on call for their for their products and they need to like know a lot of different code. I think Go has a major advantage there. Um, um, cool, so I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. It's been really great uh, catching up with you today, Igor. Um, have you got anything you'd like to plug with Elastic? Anything that's going on or are you hiring at the moment? Um, sure. So if you know if you think these are interesting problems, if you like to work with orchestration, with with networking, or maybe you're a site reliability engineer, um, if that problem sounds interesting, we are hiring. Um, we are a fully remote company. We are, we hire in all of the time zones. Some roles are time zone specific, but but the, in general, most of them are are um, distributed from you know whatever time zone works for you. Um, so yeah, if you just go to elastic.co/careers. Um, you can find the open. The open awesome. So. Yeah, I think be sure to check that out. There's lots of exciting stuff going on at Elastic. Um, and thanks, thanks again for joining me today, Igor. It's been really great chatting to you. And uh, no worries. And thanks to everyone for listening. Form three are looking to double the size of our remote first engineering team. If you'd like to help the world move money faster and enjoy working on complex technical challenges using the latest tech, feel free to check out the careers page in the description.